In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. have indeed found No Proscenium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson. This week on the show, a little flashback and flash forward action as we start anticipating the 2021 virtual burn, which brings Burning Man back to cyberspace. We talk with the co-directors of Odyssey Works about their new experience design certificate program and chat with Emma Boutine about Digital Playgrounds, a program of the new media division of the French Embassy in the United States that is looking for American creators who are ready to connect with their French counterparts this fall. Plus, Immersive 101 and the pick of the week. But first, headlines. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, Executive Editor of No Proscenium, and here's what's in the immersive headlines for August 20th. Facebook shows off Horizon Workrooms, Disney announces immersive features on its newest cruise ship, Superblue announces shows in NYC and London, a new DC-themed immersive dining experience, and a Doctor Who puzzle hunt goes IRL. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg showed off Horizon Workrooms, an Oculus software app for holding virtual meetings. The beta launched to the public on Thursday, and it's said that the company has been using the software internally for months. Some of the more interesting features include being able to see and type on your real-life keyboard while inside the headset, as well as using your VR controller as a marker on a virtual whiteboard. And in his latest Ask Me Anything on Instagram, Vice President of Facebook Reality Labs Andrew Bosworth, aka Boz, said he's convinced that Facebook will reach its goal of 10 million users in VR sooner than initially anticipated. That is, it's probably safe to assume that there are already several million Quest 1 and Quest 2 headsets out there. Disney has announced an interactive adventure for the whole family will be available aboard Disney Wish, its newest cruise ship. In Disney Uncharted Adventure, guests can use their smartphones as augmented reality spyglasses to take part in a scavenger hunt around the ship interacting with objects and artwork, culminating in a live showdown in one of the ship's performance spaces. Other features of the Disney Wish will include a Star Wars-themed bar and an interactive Marvel-themed restaurant featuring Ant-Man and the Wasp. The ship is scheduled to set sail for the first time in June 2022. Immersive Art Center Superblue will bring new immersive art experiences to New York and London this fall. The Dutch duo Drift will launch a multi-sensory exhibition called Fragile Future at The Shed in late September. The goal for Fragile Future is to, quote, play on our senses and compel us to imagine alternative solutions for a positive future, end quote. There are also plans to hold immersive performances during the run of the show. Meanwhile, in London, Studio Swine will pop up at Pace Gallery's Burlington Gardens venue with Silent Fall, an installation consisting of trees which emit mist bubbles. The name of the piece is a play on the book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. Super Blue Miami opened earlier this year after pandemic-related delays. And in other news, well, if you can't be Batman, maybe you can eat like him? Park Row, the world's first immersive DC Comics-inspired restaurant experience, opened August 10th in London. At Park Row, the world of theme parks meets magic meets molecular gastronomy. And it doesn't hurt that James Bulmer, founder and CEO, is a former Disney exec and the former CEO of Heston Blumenthal's Fat Duck Group. The Park Row venue seats 300 people across multiple spaces, including a special tasting menu room with floor-to-ceiling projection mapping and a custom table laden with special effects, including heat, levitation, and smoke. 
And also in London, in the lead-up to a new season of Doctor Who, the BBC have launched an online puzzle hunt with real-world elements, including planting fake paintings and artifacts in real-life museums. A peek at the Find the Doctor hashtag reveals the discovery of a strange oil painting in the Walker Museum in Liverpool, which suspiciously contains a TARDIS and a rocket, as well as an object of unknown origin currently on display in the Science Museum in Kensington. More on this to come. And those have been your immersive headlines. We're going to try something a little different. Come walk with me. Okay, those aren't the sound of my footsteps. I'm not even sure whose footsteps they are. But I know where we are. Out in the deep playa of Black Rock City, the temporary artist colony that has popped up in the Nevada desert pretty much every year for decades now. Until last year. Until the pandemic. So like so much else last year, Burning Man went online. A virtual burn consisting of multiple online hubs across different platforms. Some you just needed a browser for. Others, like where we are now, BRCVR, the part of the virtual burn in alt space, could be accessed in three dimensions of sight and sound. I went in with an open mind, but I was um, ready to be disappointed, let's put it that way. That's Celine Tricard, the creator of the award-winning VR work The Key. She's been to the physical world's Burning Man before. Turns out um, I was not disappointed, and, and actually what I realized is that This was definitely for me not the same emotions and not the same memories as if I were going to Burning Man in person. It was just something else and it was something else, but there was this one thing uh, that I found that was in in common with the regular Burning Man experience and that's the the community and just the relationship between uh, people who go to this event. It was a very nostalgic experience. That's my friend Bunny. My name is Bunny Holmes, and I am the director and producer of the Vespertine Circus. I'd never been to a burn before, real or virtual. But Bunny, well... So I've been to Burning Man on 10 separate occasions over the last 12 years. So when she says nostalgic, she's got some specificity going on. And stepping into reproductions of spaces from Burning Man felt like, I don't know, when you read about something and it's a place you're really familiar with, your mind fills in the rest of the gaps. I feel like as someone who's attended on many occasions, the gestures were enough to put me in a very nostalgic headspace of being back there, even where parts were missing. So that was sort of bittersweet and a really neat experience. Bunny was part of a mix of friends, burners and non-burners alike, who I ran around BRCVR with last year. If you remember what last August was like, and I know most of us are trying to forget, we were still in the first wave of the pandemic. For context, I'm someone who was locking down very strictly. I didn't pot up with anyone. I was living with my partner and it was just the two of us. And so VR became one of the outlets where I was regularly socializing with friends that felt more satisfying than a phone call and less uncomfortable than a video call. The virtual burn, and specifically BRCVR, was the first time in months that I felt like I actually saw friends last year. I'm talking really seeing them, with all the glorious headaches that come with hurting human-sized cats. 
always somebody who's like, oh, wait, I forgot my water, my water. Oh, wait, I have to grab my coat. Oh, wait, this and this and that. And so you just wait forever. And of course, you, you, you're you on your way. And five minutes later, you've lost half, half the people already. And that's kind of, yeah, you're right. That, that experience in all space of losing a bunch of people to random portal was actually a very Burning Man experience. It turns out that cat hurting humans is a feature, not a bug of life. For a long time this year, it was unclear if the physical burn would return, and what, if any, role the virtual burn would have. The long tail of the pandemic made the decision for us, and it needs a chance for more people to discover the virtual playa. What we're finding is that a lot of people who are coming in now are actually burner curious. That's Doug Jacobson, one of the organizers of BRC VR. People who always wanted to go to Burning Man, but never could make it or never can make it and want to join the community. And this is a totally new way to join the community. What's inside the virtual burn is a reflection of what's in the physical one. Again, here's Celine Tricart. Exactly like if you're going to Burning Man in person, you would go see art and, and, and participate in gathering and party. But then the second you enter the temple at Burning Man, everything kind of changes. The temple she speaks of is a Burning Man tradition, one of the fixtures of the playa that is an integral part of the Burning Man community. Like the man, the temple is burned each year, an act of collective catharsis. The creators of the 2020 temple made the choice to bring it online, something that Celine writes about on our website this week. Their philosophy behind it was not just, all right, you know, let's just bring a 3D model of the temple in an app and something, and, and, and then that's it. It was a whole journey that they crafted, a very emotional journey that starts month before the burn where people can craft and prepare offerings. And then during the burn, visiting the temple, witnessing offerings, and, and, and just going through that extremely emotional moment. And that's very different from going to, you know, out space and, and partying. As fraught as the cultural moment is, where the discussions around the future of virtual reality and the much-debated metaverse are weighted down by the drudgery of commerce and the ceaseless drive to monetize everything, it's a relief to have somewhere, anywhere, that is carving out a space where we can just be. There's all those, like, moments that have a strong impact on our souls as human. Um, it, sooner or later, virtual reality will, will be a part of it too and will support or or not support, you know. I, that, that's up to us, you know, what, what do we do with it? And so I thought that what it did with the ethereal Empyrean experience was one of the most beautiful example of how VR can become a tool uh, for our soul, you know, to to heal, uh, to learn, to just, you know, progress in life. There are, of course, still barriers. BRCVR is free once again this year, and while you can visit on a browser, for the full experience, you need a headset. Which, granted, is a lot cheaper than the cost of going to the physical Burning Man. But what just might be the key here is the way that the virtual burn can have a ripple effect on the nascent metaverse, the way that the physical burn has had an impact on our culture over the decades. Maybe this time, with all we've learned, we can get it right. 
BRC VR returns on August 29th. I'll see you out in the digital dust. You can check out Celine's piece, an oral history of the ethereal Empyrean experience, Burning Man's first digital temple, where she talks with Sylvia Adrienne Lisse and Jeremy Rausch on the front page of No Proscenium right now. And catch a full interview with Doug Jacobson of BRC VR on last week's episode of the podcast. And we're going to sneak a little more into the bonus feed for our Patreon backers soon. Still to come... Immersive 101, Odyssey Works, The Pick of the Week, and Digital Playgrounds. Class is once again in session. That's right, we've reached your favorite part of the show and mine, Immersive 101. And that means that Catherine Yu, the executive editor of No Persinium, is here with us. Catherine, what do you have for us this week? Well, Noah, I was hoping we could talk about the dark ride. Ooh, the dark ride. Yes, the dark ride from the dark web. No, wait. Um different kind <laughs> of dark. <laughs> what what is a dark? Well, so let's start. Why why do they call it a dark ride? Where does this come from? So this term comes to us from the themed entertainment world, specifically referring back to on-rails guided experiences like Peter Pan or Snow White, uh, very commonly seen at places like Disneyland, where the audience does not have freedom of movement. And so this is more of a linear curated journey through an immersive experience. Okay, but like, why dark ride? Like, where's like, why that particular term? So one very common way that this ends up being executed is a series of very focused vignettes, spookily or moodily lit, that help immerse you into the world. Maybe you get bits of pieces of a story. And again, you're on a track and it really feels like you're moving through space and time during this experience. Okay, so you're on a little a little cart moving through the dark and you're seeing little things pop up. So obviously that's something that people can make, but how does this apply to kind of the the broader immersive experiences? And like how does this apply to say, you know, immersive theater or even like a VR experience? How would how would that be a dark ride? So sometimes when you come to these experiences, you may be in a medium-sized group and all of a sudden everyone gets split up. Uh, you might be on your own, you might be with two or three people, and you are starting to see different pieces of content, but everyone is seeing something different at the same time. So my dark ride and your dark ride might actually have the same content, but in a slightly different order. And it feels like this is something where you maybe don't have a lot of agency. That's correct. You might be interacting with the set or environment, and you might be interacting with the performers, but you don't necessarily get to, quote unquote, choose your own adventure. The progression of the experience is essentially predetermined. Can you think of any, like, you know, non-theme park versions of this? Like, what would be like a theater piece we would consider a dark ride? 
So the very long running until 2020, Then She Fell, which was in Brooklyn, started off all of the audience members in a single room and dependent upon the chair you were sitting in, one by one, the cast would come and fetch you and start you on your track, kind of get you started on those rails. So that is a pretty famous example of a dark ride guided experience. I know that in our glossary, we have a couple of like related terms. Do you want to dig into that for a second? Sure. So sometimes this comes to life as what we call a clockwork piece so that the entire audience sees at least a portion of the scenes in a linear fashion. But, you know, I might see scene one, two, three, four, but you might see two, three, four, one in that different order. So we might each have a different starting point but essentially be going in that circle, hence the name clockwork. Right. They're like, I always think of it as everyone gets loaded into the machine and then the machine starts moving, but everyone's loaded into a different part of the machine and the gears go around and, and interact with each other. Exactly. And one of the things that's really interesting about this is dependent on where you started and where you ended, you might feel completely differently about the show. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the ways that people kind of foster that conversation after the show because by putting the scenes in a different order you tell a different story yeah you're changing the context and that is definitely one of the best parts of going to an immersive show it's that debrief afterwards where you're sharing your experience anything else we should know about the dark ride form Timing is everything, and I'm sure any immersive creator who's sat down and tried to spreadsheet all of this out knows exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) All right. Well, good luck out there assembling your dark rides, everyone. Uh, And Catherine, we'll see you on the next 101. Thank you. And now we get a chance to sit down with the co-directors of Odyssey Works, who have just started a new program they will tell us all about. Joining us today are... I'm Abraham Bjergsen. I'm co-director of Odyssey Works. And I'm Aiden LaRue. I'm also the co-director of Odyssey Works, and we're co-founders of the Experience Design Certificate Program. All right. We're going to get into the Experience Design Certificate Program in just a moment, but first... Odyssey Works has been around for 20 years. Congratulations. You're celebrating Ooh. right now. Um, and I know a lot of our experiential and immersive theater audience are very familiar with Odyssey Works as a company. But there are parts of our audience, like our XR friends, uh, who maybe don't know you and this is your first their first chance to meet you. So could you give a little overview of what your team's work has consisted of over over this these past two decades? Yeah, yeah. Um... I can't believe it's been 20 years. No, it's kind of crazy. When we started in 2001, it was just an experiment and nobody was saying immersive. Nobody was saying experience design. I remember the first talks we gave in museums, people were saying, oh, isn't this performance art? And we we, we said no, but we didn't really have a word for it. So it's it's been a long time. We, we started as a series of experiments trying to understand uh, what would happen if we just changed the way performances happen? Could we possibly affect somebody's life more? And the easiest way for us to think about doing that was to create performances that were just for one person. 
and we had a big group of artists and performers and we would get somebody who was willing to kind of experiment with us and we would study them for months and we'd create these, what started out as day long, eventually became week long, eventually became months long performances for one person audiences. And the more we did this, the more we realized that we were pulling on a thread that um, started to unravel all the ways we understood art, theater, performance, design happening. And 20 years later, we're still pulling on that thread. We've made performances for one-person audiences all over. We've done them. Um, if we started out in San Francisco, and then we did them for a long time in New York. We've done them in Seattle and Canada and Mexico, all over the place. And as we've developed this work, as we've worked with scores of different audiences, created communities around creating experiences for people, we've um, developed a, a set of practices and understandings and learnings about how to work this way that aren't limited to these live experiences that seem to have an impact on designers in all different fields. And eventually, Aiden and I sat down and we said, we need to to put these ideas down, to put these learnings down, these organizational understandings that we've spent at that point 15 years developing and write a book. So we did, and Princeton Architectural Press published it in 2016 on election day. Not the best day to release the book. <laughs> yeah, just not right. super fun. Poorly <laughs> <Not>. designed timing. <laughs> Um, and so after that, we kind of took, did a shift and we realized we were really interested in sharing these ideas with people and allowing these ideas to have an impact. By that time, the idea of experience design was, was kind of getting out there. Immersive work was happening. Amazing projects were out in the world. First, it was Sleep No More. And then you started seeing things like Meow Wolf. And, um, and the world was changing. And we were really happy to be able to talk, to speak into that change. Now we do these educational programs along with our performances. Um, we've done these workshops and we've done these master classes and we invite people into our process so they can learn from it. Um, that's a pretty, it's a pretty quick overview of 20 years of what we've tried to do. So the new program is the Experience Design Certificate Program. And just, just for starters, what does that entail? Yeah, so glad you asked. Um, so the Experience Design Certificate program is starting in 2022. So we're taking applications now through October 1st. And what it's going to look like is kind of a one-year low residency. It's not quite an MFA, um, but one of the things that we were seeing and really wanting to respond to as a need within the community that we're part of um, is that people want to professionalize, they want to expand their portfolio, and they also really want to find a meaningful community that's centers around purpose and making work that is profound and transformational. So it's structured, just sort of quick bullet point notes. It's um, 10 to 15 people will participate in the, the program, which is 10 months long. And that 10 months is going to be bookended by two in-person retreats. Uh, hopefully they will be in person because of COVID. Um, <laughs> who knows? We're bracing ourselves. Um, but uh, the first retreat will be in Baltimore. And then uh, in November, at the end of the year, we'll have a retreat in New York where people will present a final work. In the middle there, we have weekly meetings that will all be remote on Zoom. 
And these are sort of hybrid seminar sessions where we'll go through fundamentals of experience design principles. Um, we'll talk about narrative. We'll talk about interactive narratives, world building. There's also going to be a large component that's devoted to professional practice and um, thinking about financial sides, practicalities like applying for grants or residencies, and also a real commitment or we're asking all of the students who come to this to to commit to a level of self-reflection on their own process. So it's both looking at these core ideas of what makes exceptional experience design, what brings a sort of rigor to this craft, and then also how can you really think about deeply immersing your, your creative work and weaving it into your life so it's not just this separate thing that's a side hustle, but how can you really bring the two together? We've been seeing a lot of fields changing, uh, a lot of design fields. We've seen architecture changing. We've seen people bringing these experience design ideas into places we had no idea they would, be, they would belong. We, we've worked with religious organizations. We've worked with teachers. We've worked, we've worked with HR organizations. We've worked with all kinds of people. And what we've seen is what we already knew from our own work, which is that thinking in an experience design way is, is a superpower. That's what we want to bring through this program, and we've been building up to it. We've we've uh, we've had a master class that we've done every for the last few years, and and over the course of the pandemic, we've done an online uh, incubator where people are able to develop these projects in community. What we're doing here is to put all is putting all that together with an aim to transforming the way people work, the way fields work and the way a community can develop around a, a way of making. This is a discipline agnostic program. I think really within that discipline agnostic program, we're seeing that's how that's what makes the community so rich, right? That's what makes the community transformational is that people are exposed to so many different ways of thinking um, that get them outside of their silos, right? Everyone is so focused on their particular field and honing an expertise. And there's a way that this interdisciplinarity can really enrich the practice of experience design as a sort of mode of thinking. Who is this for? Is Because it, it has a bit of the vibe of like a graduate program that you kind of tap into. What's mm-hmm. what's sort of like, who's, I guess, the ideal candidate uh, or, or who's this designed to support the most? Well, we've had a such a variety of people come through our doors over the last five years since we published this book and since we started leading these workshops in person. And I would say that we're thinking about it kind of in two key ways. One is as an alternative, like you're saying, to an MFA program, something that's a little shorter, higher intensity, build your portfolio a little bit more quickly. And then also for people who are already in the field, who are, you know, working at corporations or they've They've been doing the the same thing for a while and they want to look at their work, their career in a new way and bring a new skill set to what they do already. Yeah, that's why we made it um, low res, high intensity, as it were. Uh, Both of us have talked quite a bit in higher education. There's there's issues that we have with that. Um, And one of the things is a kind of lack of flexibility. We want people out there in their lives making work 
uh, in the, wherever they're working and working with us at the same time to very actively be transforming the way they do that. We don't want people to drop out of their life, move somewhere, go to an intense program and go back to something else that was different. Um, so the, you know, the people we're looking for are, you know, so many of the people making work on every, you know, that you guys review, we're looking for people in fields to do this. It's a kind of professional development, but it's also a personal development at the same time. And I would say that community is really committed to transformation. Like some of what we're trying to bring to this group of people is anyone who is interested in having a transformational experience where their whole life is going to be changed. Um, that's what we bring from our work into the teaching sphere is this hope that it will be life-changing um, and full of meaning and, and profound sense of purpose um, and not just sort of a light educational, you know, like spit and polish. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've had people uh, come to us who want to redesign how death and hospice works. We've had people come to us who want to do new kinds of art projects that they couldn't even articulate before they started with us. We've had people come to us to redesign um, religious communities and to rethink them from the ground up more than once. You know, what's so fascinating is that when people come to us from their fields, they're bringing something we couldn't possibly have thought of. We're not teaching people how to do those things. We're helping them transform those fields using a set of techniques that we've developed over the years, but also developing a community that grows and that helps each other to think in new ways. Now, the program kicks off in 2022, but it's there is an application process. So what are, what are the key deadlines coming up for those who, uh, who have had their interest piqued by this? Um, well, we have an informational session that's going to be on September 20th from 8 to 9 p.m. EST, um, Eastern Time. And that uh, we do ask that people RSVP to get a Zoom link, and that's available on our website, um, owprograms.com. And then the application deadline itself is going to be October 1st. So we've got about seven and a half weeks, not quite two months, but seven-ish weeks for the application itself to be submitted. And there, there are a couple of scholarships. I know you haven't asked for that, but I, it's important that we put that out there. We have, uh, um, we're really lucky to have an anonymous donor um, who is paying for two scholarships for BIPOC individuals who wish to apply their full scholarships. And we also have some financial aid, uh, some partial scholarships through financial aid that are need-based. So people can apply for that and for the program at the same time. Our cohorts are going to be extraordinarily small. Um, not, I don't want to scare anyone off, but we're going to keep it to 10 to 15 people uh, we want to keep the teaching as intimate as the work. Um, <laughs> we're moving beyond the one person audience, but you know, we want it to have the same level of care and attentiveness and, and mentorship too, really. Like I think a lot of people who come to certificate programs or any sort of MFA program are looking for deep connections with not only their peers, but also their instructors. And so we really want to create that sense of mentorship and one significant amount of space for one-on-one time. All right. We'll have all of the pertinent links in the show notes. Abraham and Aiden, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with us this week. Thanks so much for having us, Noah.
This episode of No Persinium, like all we do, is brought to you by our generous Patreon backers, the latest of whom is JB Vic. You can join our Patreon and unlock backer-only content at patreon.com slash noprisinium. It is how we keep moving forward, even in the face of, well, you know. Also, if you've got a moment, take a second to share the podcast out on social media, or if you've got a little more time, you could write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. I still use Apple Podcasts and help more people discover the show. We really do rely on word of mouth and you make a huge difference. That is not hyperbole. Hi, this is Kevin Gossett, the LA Reviews Editor for No Presidium. I'm here to introduce this week's pick of the week. Every week we've been in the Discord for a review crew where you to talk about what we've seen or experienced recently. You can hear that in this very podcast feed uh, in the show right before this one. And it's a partners to review rundown on the site where we select the pick of the week. This week with the pick we have... Noah Nelson, the host of this show. What? What? <laughs> You've never been on that side before. I know. Uh, this, this is what happens when none of the rest of the team who saw something this week show up for the review crew show. I defaults to me. What do you know? Well, and, and by all rights, you had a, uh, very cool sounding show. So, uh, no, what is the pick of the week? The pick of the week is Optica Pinata by Optica Moderna of San Diego, California. I guess I should describe it a little bit. That's what we should do in this part. Um, this is the third live show from Optica Moderna. Uh, it is the first show they've done that is expressly designed for families. The uh, This was done as part of the Without Walls pop-up festival put on by the La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego down at Liberty Station. It was a one-on-one experience. You approached a, a U-Haul that was decorated like a pinata and were greeted by folks just dressed up as opt- opt- ophthalmologists, opticians, you know, eye doctors. Uh, and they, and they, 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 they led you into the uh, back of the U-Haul, which uh, looks like a pin- looked like a pinata from the outside, but was in fact this like magical doctor's office filled with these little curios. Uh, they sat you down and treated you what started to feel like an eye test, but in fact was a little storytelling experience that only lasted about seven minutes. But in that seven minutes, you go on a full journey where they're whipping your attention around from point to point, revealing small objects that are that are physicalizing the story, uh, having you crawl through a part of the U-Haul to uncover an object and bring it back. And they send you on your way with a packet to create your own Teatro Piñata and await further instructions. I am currently awaiting further instructions and I'm very curious as to where the story goes next. What exactly makes it the pick of the week? The absurd levels of detail that David Israel Reynoso, the uh, leader of Optica Moderna, packs into the experiences he creates and the way that the company has a ongoing metaphor around uh, vision and the focusing of visual attention in order to unveil uh, specific details 
and weave an entire world out of them just speaks to the absolute highest levels of the immersive form. Anytime that Optica Moderna is doing work, there's a good chance that it would have been the pick of the week if we were doing this in the past. And right now in particular, just being able to, even for just seven little minutes, touch base with this loving attention to detail and this this instilled sense of childlike wonder that was transmitted from the performer to me, all done with everybody masked, with everything feeling really safe and secure. I was able to touch the the pure immersive beat again, and it's been a long time since I got to do that. So that's why. And is this show still running? Sadly, this was part of a weekend-long pop-up, but... Without Walls will return in its full form next April, and I would be shocked if uh, this doesn't return. I don't think they, I don't think they went through all the people that would possibly want to see this show. And Optica Moderna uh, is that company is in residence at La Jolla Playhouse for uh, right now, so uh, there's a, I think a very good chance that uh, it will it will ride again. Thanks, Noah. Um, you can read more of Noah's thoughts about Optica Pinata on the review rundown out this week. And uh, stay tuned for more from the review crew. Thanks for having me on the show, Kevin. What? <laughs> it's your show. Joining us right now is Emma Boutin, who is the new media officer for the French Embassy in the United States. Uh, I've had a chance to talk to Emma before on the phone, but uh, we're so happy to have her here on the podcast. Emma, thank you for joining us right before you uh, get to go on vacation. Thank you so much, Noah. I'm so excited and pleased to be here with you. You all have a, a program coming up called Digital Playground. I wonder if you could just uh, give us the basics on it. Yeah, Digital Playgrounds is a New York-based program, and we will have six projects coming from France, uh, six projects that are related to video game and immersive experiences. And what we will do is we will first have an online session to help them to understand what's going on here and uh, to know the basics in order to write their video games or immersive experiences. And then they will come one month uh, in New York City. They will be based in New York City for one month to meet with the ecosystem here, with professionals uh, to participate in workshops in order to really work on their project and to get the most of the U.S. ecosystem and the New York ecosystem in order to um, really make these video game and immersive experiences to be a success. So, and just to be clear for everyone, uh, the application is still happening, I think, into September, but the designers who can apply are, are coming from France, right? Yes, exactly. The call for application is opened until mid-September uh, only uh, for French people, sorry, but U.S. Uh, professionals are uh, really welcome to uh, reach out to me because the objective is really for French 
creators to meet with US professionals and uh, to gain um, knowledge, experience from them, and really to build uh, this kind of bridges between France and the US. So that so that process is still going on. So you have some people lined up, but you're you're not done yet getting some folks for that. Exactly, and um, we really want to have U.S. professionals uh, for mentorships or to uh, give different um, master classes in order that they could share their knowledge. And um, the objective of it is to create corporations in between U.S. and France. For, for those of us who spend time on the festival circuit, we know that the government of France, and I, I'm think, thinking specifically about the, all, the, all the cultural affairs uh, departments, uh, you know, have a keen interest in XR. So I'm, I'm wondering why is this important to the powers that be? So we are launching digital playgrounds with the National Film Board of France, the CNC, and with also other French organizations. Uh, we are really great supporters of French creators. We do believe that there is a um, high level of creativity, um, technical skills in France, and we really want to promote this creativity, this French touch to the US. And as you can see in festivals like Tribeca, South by Southwest, and Sundance, there are always a great bunch of uh, French projects. And I guess that the French touch is really about storytelling, storytelling, how to uh, find new ways to tell a story. And particularly, it is particularly true when we talk about immersive technologies, you have to think differently. You have to uh, find what is so unique when you use virtual reality, what you cannot tell in um, in a flat screen and you can tell in virtual reality in 3D environments. And I, I do believe that it's also this French ecosystem that is very original and unique. It's a niche, but uh, because of public support and also creativity entrepreneurship that these studios have. There is a lot of talents in France and our job is really to promote them and to uh, make them work with um, US companies and uh, tech companies, but also uh, other studios. There's definitely a real presence. It feels like much in the same way that the French cinema has this um, shaping impact on the world cinema and and massive influence on U.S. filmmakers. It feels like this is being replicated in XR. Yeah, I think that XR. What is uh, what is super interesting in XR is you have creators from different industries. It's not an industry in itself. And most of them uh, are from the film industry. And so for instance, we launched this French immersion program with the National Film Board of France, with UniFriends, with the Institute Francais and the FACE Foundation. And we wanted to have French people coming more and more in, into festivals that are mainly 
festival for film, but like tri Tribeca and South by Southwest, Sundance. But now it's so interesting to see that um, it becomes more and more trans um, industry. We have different industries part of these festivals, like Tribeca is open now to game, to podcast. And I, I see the same thing in XR. You have more people joining from different sectors, uh, from, from visual, visual art, from games. And also we have people from XR and the film industry being more and more interested in games. And this is what we want to do with digital playgrounds is to build bridges in between XR and games and and have different people from different backgrounds to come to New York and to meet with US professionals. What what do you just to talk person to person for a second, and you've you've talked about you know a lot of the structural stuff. Is there something you find particularly interesting about XR as a person, as a as a connoisseur of the arts? Yeah, I love the presence that you can feel in XR, and it was particularly true uh, when we were all at home um, and this lockdown, and to meet with. For instance, at South by Southwest, to meet with all the people, we uh, organized a, a meetup in VR. And then I was able to uh, to meet uh, with the team of uh, Finding Pandora. And then I was able to uh, see the show from um, my living room. And I felt like, oh, that's amazing what we can create. We can be all together from all around the world and we can experience the same uh, show and this was it, it was a, um, a very amazing experience what I find interesting as well is that you are deeply into the story you are totally concentrated on the story and because you have this headset on your head you cannot check your phone um, your emails or you are totally focused on the story and I love this feeling that you are 100% into a story. And it is so rare because we are always switching from one thing to another one. And when you are in a VR experience, it's a meditative experience kind of. And I love this feeling. And obviously, we have the best creators, I guess, in France, in the US, and also in other parts of the world, the best are the one that reach to drive you through an experience and you feel like you want to stay in your VR headset, you want to have your VR headset for longer than the 20 minutes that the experience lasts. And these, these creators are the one who reach to master how to tell stories in a 360 environment and in 3D and all the one who can totally understand what is totally different in VR that you cannot do in a flat screen. Emma, you mentioned that uh, you're still looking for American creators, uh, professionals who want to connect and maybe teach some master classes. Uh, if people think they've got what it takes, how should they reach out to you? 
this is pretty simple. If you want to reach me, my email address, my email address is Emma, E-M-M-A dot Butin, B-U-T-T-I-N at frenchculture.org. So this is the easiest way to reach out to me. My email address, emma.butin at frenchculture.org. And also, uh, we teamed up with Dara Dandurang. She um, is also well-known for being uh, so many f- people at the same time, <laughs> like a creative director, a producer, um, a journalist. So she works uh, with us on this program. So feel free to uh, reach out to me or to Dara, and we will be pleased to uh, speak with you and uh, to see how you can participate in this program. Emma, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing this with us. Uh, this is very exciting. I know how committed uh, your office is to this whole process and this this continuous cross-cultural exchange. So I'm really looking forward to see what the fruits of Digital Playgrounds are going to be. Thank you so much, Noah. It's such a pleasure to uh, speak with you about XR, video games, all the things that I love. And we would love to create more and more French and US connections. So feel free to reach out to me while listening to this podcast and see you very soon. Once again, we've reached the end of the show. This is like the fastest episode we've had so far since we did the reboot. And you know what? I kind of like it that way. Uh, so expect, uh, maybe expect us to like make make them like five minutes long in the future. Anyhow, uh, probably won't go that uh, full route. You've also reached the unscripted section of the show. Uh, you can always tell because my cadence changes or, or maybe you can't. Did I just reveal something? Anyway, you already know. You know, I just winged the ending. Uh, not too much right now, but a couple of notes. One, a recon is this weekend. Uh, hopefully you've grabbed your ticket uh, to check out. It's free, so you might as well. Uh, that is our friends over at Room Escape Artist. They are doing their uh, second annual convention online. Lots of fun uh, talks and there's a whole play pass thing that's going on. There's games, there's an ARG happening. Uh, so go check that out at roomescapeartist.com. If you haven't already, you can, you'll, you'll get into the links there. Uh, I might see you around. Uh, not this weekend, but next weekend indeed is when the virtual burn starts. So starting on the 29th, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I will see you out there in the digital dust. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It, it, it's no joke what I was talking about <laughs> inside. There's a reason why we did a tone poem this week. Uh, it was very restorative. Uh, you can also keep an eye out. I know a lot of people have been curious as to what we're going to do with the the summit in 2022. For those who don't know, uh, you know, we've been part of producing an immersive summit for a few years. And we announced uh, our dates for January 7th, 8th, and 9th in Pasadena. Uh, that hasn't changed yet. Uh, but we are going to start uh, telling you a little bit about what the programming is going to be and some of the plans are. That information is going to start rolling out next week. And um, yeah, I'm I'm actually, I'm excited. Uh, it's also kind of feels weird to be planning events right now. I know that there's, 
you know, there's concerts are, are starting to get canceled. And I believe VidCon just pulled from October. Things are choppy right now. But the good news is like for every bit of bad news, there's some good news. The good news is uh, here in the United States, we just hit uh, 200 million people who have at least one uh, one jab in them. Uh, so that's, you know, the better part of two thirds of the population. And I know that we're still waiting on some authorizations when it comes to uh, getting vaccines into kids. And I know that there's all sorts of things going on with tensions around mask mandates, a school to reopen. In short, it's a mess. Uh, but what we're really looking towards, how can we gather the creative community again in a way that uh, not only is safe and not only, well, not only feels safe, but is safe, but more importantly, so that people can, can relax in and, and, and actually connect. Cause I know tensions are definitely high right now and, um, and everyone's in different places. Some folks are just eager to get meeting up again and other folks are going deeper into lockdown and yeah, uh, I feel good about the way the winter is going to be. I, I feel like we've learned some hard lessons uh, over the summer about what we can and can't do. And we're starting to get through that. And my hope is that we're through the worst of it all. Anyway, the pandemic, it's still on top of everything. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of other things uh, to keep an eye on right now. Of course, uh, you know, uh, from the, the news, we had the, the Facebook workspace thing, uh, which is definitely interesting. Uh, you know, Facebook is is definitely a company that uh, has a lot of influence when it comes to the way virtual reality is going because they're the big consumer headset at the moment. Uh, indeed, when I go to Burning Man, I do it in an Oculus headset. Um, they also maybe had some FTC trouble this week on the same day. What a coincidence. Um, keep an eye towards that. Uh, because, uh, maybe the FTC is going to, I don't, I haven't seen anything get broken up in a really long time. So like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on Facebook being broken up, but nevertheless, um, we, we live in interesting times to say the least. All right. That's the chattiest I've been on this for a while because also we're under an hour for the first time and I kind of feel so. That's the downside. The more time we have, the chattier I get. Let's go do the credits, shall we? All right, here we go. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Ari Herstand, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Lonnie Hanson, Paul Farnell, Mark Balthazar, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all so much for keeping us going. If you'd like to join the ranks or if you can just help out at all, patreon.com slash no proscenium. It's the only money I get each month. Seriously, it's my only source of income. So <laughs> please. All right. Uh, you unlock a bunch of backer uh, bonuses that way. It's fun. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society here in L.A. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. Catherine Yu is the executive editor at No Pro. And this podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed, oh God, by yours truly, Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>